This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. But I must be prepared any time to Our producer, Paul Brennan, needs to get out of my head. This is exactly the song that I was hoping for to bring us into this discussion about the Fed minutes hitting the tape uh, just a few minutes ago. We heard a little bit from Joe Weisenthal and Dave Wilson, but we want to dig a little deeper. Uh, And for that, we have Alex Harris. She's our bond reporter here at Bloomberg News, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in Manhattan. And we're also joined by Frances Donald. She is head of macroeconomic strategy for Manulife Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Toronto. Thanks so much for being here. So, Alex, give us a first quick look as you guys digested all this on the desk. What jumped out at you? Um, in my head, what people were looking for, at least in the interest rate space, was one, discussion of the balance sheet, discussion of the yield curve, and maybe a discussion about the toolkit. We got a discussion about the Fed's toolkit, and in quite in depth, actually, the first two pages of the FOMC minutes are all about the Fed's toolkit, especially when they're at the lower bound, at when they're near zero. And there's a lot of questions about it, and, and ultimately, where the discussion went was – you know, while the committee, they said, while our current toolkit's okay, we need to start discussing policy options further and and talk about evaluating the toolkit as we go and whether or not, you know, this is going to be an effective policy going forward because they did discuss the concerns. Fiscal policy, you know, countercyclical fiscal policy is a concern, which is getting to the end of a rate hike cycle and we're in a massive fiscal stimulus uh, as we have been lately. So these are things that came up. The balance sheet, they're talking about how they need to resume this and they'll probably start resuming the conversation in the fall, which is at least a good indication for market participants who have been saying the Fed needs to get to the balance sheet discussion. They need to get to this discussion because the regulations have changed how reserves are used. So everyone in the market saying, well, wait a minute, reserves might not be as scarce as everyone once thought they were. The Fed might not be able to, excuse me, end its balance sheet runoff in 2021. Or if they do end it in 2021, there's significant risk for the funding market. So now that's forcing them to sort of start talking about it. And I think that's a sigh of relief for some people. Um, and then the yield curve, you know, and they're monitoring the Yeah, let the me flatten. bring in Francis Donald on that as well. Francis, great to have you joining us. We have a commentary here that uh, the Fed's discussion about the yield curve is much more tame than when we talk about it. I'm taking a look here. Market reaction relatively muted, both two tens, 30-year yields not moving very much. But you're seeing a pretty flat yield curve. That twos, tens now a 22 handle and the twos, 30s a 38. Was there anything in this report that really surprised you? Well, what surprised me is that there isn't really any consensus internally on how to incorporate the information about yield curve flattens into policy decisions. We know that the Fed has been engaged in research that looks much more at the front end and trying to find whether there is a relationship between uh, the two's ten shape or whether they should be looking at something else. I did see a note that other participants emphasized that inferring economic causality from statistic correlations was not appropriate. So it doesn't appear that the Fed has a really strong view on whether 
they should be thinking about yield curve flattens and certainly whether they need to pause if the yield curve gets any flatter from here on out. So, Francis, I also want to ask you, you know, one of the things that we're starting to get a feel for is what is the shape of the Powell Fed? And we'll obviously get more sense of that later in the week when he speaks at Jackson Hole. But as I'm reading our top live blog about this, which is it's a must read, especially if you're a, a Fed geek uh, and you have a Bloomberg terminal. But one of our editors, Brendan Murray, who I've known for 25 years, points out that rarely do the minutes talk about the chairman by name. And they talk about the chairman by name here. I, maybe don't read too much into that in particular, but what are we starting to learn about this Powell Fed in your estimation? Well, it is said, but it's, so we are going to read into every single little comment, <laughs> just like we do on statements. Well said. Um, the, the Powell said, generally, I would say from the street, is perceived as one that has very strong communication skills. And something that's come as a welcome development, I think, for a lot of market participants is the emphasis on the idea that perhaps talking obsessively about our star, what's the neutral rate, what's the real rate, he's kind of moved away from that. He's begun to say, well, let's see how that story evolves over time. Maybe there's um, you know, there's a whole wide list of research that says the R star is a different number. There's no consensus in that area as well. So he's saying maybe we need to be a little bit less technical, a little less theoretical, and play this as the data develops and, and really focus much more on the narrative and the risks of the narrative instead of focusing too obsessively on what the academic numbers might tell us. So in the long-standing debate between is the Fed run by academics or B-schoolers, it seems a little bit more like the B-schoolers might be winning out just a touch more right now. I want to chat quickly just about the Phillips curve, which is, of course, the relationship between unemployment and inflation. We did hear from the FOMC that recent tariffs are putting upward pressure on input prices, that over the medium term, inflation remains near 2%, and some are expecting nominal wages to rise. Are you starting to see a little bit more of the significance about that Phillips curve come back as we're starting to see inflation start to go back up to that 2% level? Isn't it funny? You know, a while ago, the first question that I would have received from all of you would have been what's going on with the Fed's view of inflation. It's part of their dual mandate. And yet now all of the focus on the Fed comes back to what's going on with fiscal and trade and balance sheet management. But at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve does have a dual mandate of stable low employment and predictable inflation. In our view, we are not witnessing any sizable upward pressures on inflation right now. We're expecting core inflation to accelerate through to the end of the year, and that headline inflation probably peaks out around July or August. But this is almost kind of a perfect environment for the Fed to operate in. It implies that they can move forward with rate hikes because they have inflation around 2% on target, but they also have the capacity to say, wait, we want some optionality. We can slow down on perhaps a December rate hike. We can press pause because we don't see signs of overheating just yet. So I was looking today in the Fed minutes for evidence that they were going to become concerned about overheating. I only see a couple comments here about fiscal being a potential upside risk. But on balance, no, I don't see evidence the Phillips curve is suddenly back in play in a sizable way that changes monetary policy. Francis Donald, head of macro economic strategy at Manulife. Alex Harris, bond reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us break it down. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. It has been a remarkable 24 hours, to say the least. And over that period of time, we have tapped any number of experts, especially across the Bloomberg empire. And we've got two of them joining us now to help us understand where we go from here. Joining us in the studio here in New York is Greg Farrell, 
our go-to guy for all things legal. And on the phone, joining us from our Washington bureau is Andrew Harris. We spoke with him yesterday as he was covering the minute-by-minute of the Paul Manafort trial. Greg, I want to start with you. Where do we go from here? Well, there's obviously two tracks from yesterday. There's the Manafort track and there's the Cohen track. Let's start with Manafort. Um, Guilty plea, big victory for the special counsel. Uh, The question we've been wondering about, and we did a story on it today, involves a pardon. Um, Trump, the President Trump, signaled today in a tweet that he was uh, uh, at some extent proud that Manafort didn't break and confess or make up stuff in order to please prosecutors, but it was very sad what has happened to him. And that could be interpreted uh, as a sign that he wants you know, Manafort to hang in there. Mm-hmm. So the question would be, uh, President Trump has sh- you know, shown you know, that he's perfectly willing to use the power of the pardon uh, several times in this past year. And if he were to par- pardon Manafort, that could make a dent. That would, um, uh, it could make a dent in Mueller's probe. But it could also spark a political backlash against Republicans in the upcoming elections. That's the, you know, the theme we hit: is that a pardon might backfire um, on November seventh, um, and as a result, there might be a third option, and that is a commutation. If the president waited until such point that Manafort was going to be sentenced and then just commuted the sentence, that that might be a way for him to get more Manafort out of jail without the political backlash of something, you know, interfering with the election. Yeah, and Greg, before we switch on over to the Cohen case, I want to bring in Andrew Harris here. You're joining us from our D.C. Bureau. Thank you, Andrew, for being uh, for being so willing to jump on the phone with oh, us. Oh, sure, not a problem. Given short notice. Uh, talk to us a little bit as well about that reaction to the pardon. Some of the commentary I've heard today is that a pardon wouldn't make sense because the state has a case that they could bring against Manafort as well. What is your take on this as our legal expert? Well, as a uh, as, as you noted, a pardon is only good for federal crimes. The president cannot exercise that power. If Paul Manafort got charged by, say, uh, state authorities in New York or Virginia uh, for crimes committed there, perhaps related to tax filings there that echo the federal filings uh, for which he was convicted yesterday. So uh, Paul Manafort remains in considerable jeopardy. He's got another trial scheduled to start here in Washington in September on money laundering and foreign lobbying, uh, undisclosed foreign lobbying charges, plus obstruction of justice. So um, there's a lot still hanging over his head that is undetermined. So, Greg, let me jump back to you and and let's talk a little bit about Michael Cohen, because notably uh, the commentary from the president via tweets today was, uh, shall we say, less supportive of Michael Cohen, his former uh, personal attorney and self-described fixer. Uh, He made a a tweet, a rather caustic and presumably sarcastic tweet uh, about, you know, not hiring, not advising that anyone hire I, hire Michael Cohen as their personal attorney. I saw a tweet earlier today that said it's the world's worst Yelp review uh, for legal advice. Uh, what happens next in the Cohen case? Good question. Cohen is essentially done with prosecutors in New York. Um, however, despite the fact that he doesn't have a plea deal where he's required to continue cooperating, I think we can expect that if he has more information – about the Trump organization, he will share it with prosecutors in New York. More importantly, it has to do with Mueller. This case was handled out of New York, but 
if Cohen does have any information that he can offer on potential or on Russian interference and the involvement of members of the Trump campaign, and he's in a position that he might, then um, uh, he could you know, offer that to Mueller, be called before a grand jury, and given some level of immunity and speak about that. So that's the, you know, the $64 million question, if you will, now, is what does Cohen have that might go to Mueller's investigation? And really, all of this brings up the broader question of we're approaching midterms, of course, so soon. It was interesting that when we were hearing from Sarah Sanders, uh, she reiterated that the White House is still very much focused on their economic policies, their borders. That has been their priority since January 20th. Greg, I want to ask you, what does all of this mean for the midterms? Do the Republicans still sort of stand their ground, keep their focus on the economy and border control, and how does this sort of mobilize them in a new way? Well, this this is where yesterday was such a bad day, not just for the president, but for the Republicans, because they have a great economic story to tell. It's been, you know, the last year and a half to two years in the market, and overall, the tax cuts, pro-business, there's all sorts of positive economic factors that are reaching highs that we haven't seen in 15 or 20 years. Um, so there's this great story, but in fact, every day the newspaper is filled with other stories about Paul Manafort, about money laundering, about Michael Cohen, about Stormy Daniels, payoffs to porn stars. It's just that's that's not something that most Republicans really want to run on at all. And Andrew, I want to bring you back in here to just make sure we understand the, the context for Manafort and the role that he played in the campaign, because the – it's important to to understand uh, that a lot of these charges and a lot of this investigation was not about the campaign per se. And and one of the things that the president pointed out was that while this was triggered by the Mueller investigation, it was related to a lot of issues and a lot of business uh, and activity that Manafort conducted long before he was associated with President Trump. How significant is that going forward and from a public perception perspective? That's that's correct. Manafort was indicted predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly for money that he made while working for the Ukrainian Party of Regions and uh, the Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, who held office there from 2010 to 2014. Manafort allegedly made about $60 million working for those Ukrainian entities, money paid to him by Ukrainian oligarchs that flowed into offshore accounts, mostly in Cyprus, uh, much of which went to furnish a lavish lifestyle here in the U.S. and went unreported to U.S. authorities. That's what got Mueller, uh, Manafort rather in trouble. But at the tail end of that, when the money ran out and Yanukovych was no longer in power, he went seeking bank loans from American banks, and some of that conduct overlapped with his time initially uh, being hired on to run the Republican uh, convention. And then when Corey Lewandowski got into trouble to take over as Trump's campaign chairman in May 2016. So it's not of the election, but some of it is contemporaneous with the campaign. And so, Greg, you've done a great job sort of breaking down sort of what happens legally next. We have sentencing presumably coming up uh, for Cohen in December, I believe. Andrew has done a great job laying out for us what happens next in the Manafort case. I do want to make sure everyone understands this issue of cooperation, though, as it relates to Cohen, because that was not part of the original agreement uh, as far as we understand it. And yet that is hanging out there, and that does seem to be one of the big questions that, that looms, correct? Yes, 
And uh, I think Cohen and his lawyers wanted some kind of a plea deal, some kind of a cooperation agreement, which would imply a vastly reduced sentence with New York, and he didn't get it. Um, I think it's part of the posture of the New York prosecutors, as it has been with Mueller, in some cases, when they see a crime, just to go after it as hard as they can. Um, now, having said that, it does not preclude Cohen from cooperating. He still has the ability to serve as a witness. In fact, in some ways, once you've pleaded, you've walked in and voluntarily pleaded guilty to a crime. If you then testify um, in another matter um, without a plea, real, uh, a plea agreement, then that undercuts most defense arguments saying, well, the only reason this guy is saying such and such about my client is that he's trying to reduce his sentence. It's like, no, he has no deal. He's agreed to plead guilty. And in some ways, he's cleaner as a prosecution witness. Great stuff. Uh, Our thanks to two of the hardest working men in Hollywood, Greg Farrell, our legal reporter, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, and Andrew Harris joining us from Washington. He has been on the case, as it were, with Paul Manafort and will continue to be as both of these stories continue to play out. Oh, I love trash. Anything It is always a good day, Taylor, when you can have Oscar the Grouch in your life. And this is a really cool story in the latest issue of Bloomberg Businessweek. It's about Chinese companies. And I'm just going to read the headline. Chinese firms, quote, starving for trash, are buying up U.S. factories. And the guy who dug into this, literally and figuratively, uh, for us is Michael Sasso. He's an economy reporter down in our Atlanta bureau, my old hometown. Uh, Michael, great to be with you. So take us inside this very uh, provocative phenomenon of Chinese firms looking to the U.S., uh, not for production necessarily, but for refuse. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, uh, happy to be with you. Yeah, this was kind of news to me, but uh, China has been taking a lot of Americans' trash for quite a number of years. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the recycling material that uh, you stick on the corner uh, out outside your house actually winds its way to China, and uh, and without without China taking that. You know those recyclables. You know, you know there wouldn't be as much of a market for recyclables uh, in the United States, and that's kind of what happened um, uh, at the beginning of this year. China started getting let's call it stingy. They they wanted a cleaner stream of recyclables, recyclables, and the, so they start. You know, in the past they had been taking all kinds of stuff. You know, pizza boxes with uh, nasty cheese stuck to it, and you know, glass, broken glass would be shards would be included in lots of the plastics and whatnot. And and what they had to do is they had to, you know, throw out a lot of that stuff that didn't kind of make the grade. And so, you know, essentially China was taking a lot of the, you know, was having to discard in their own landfills a lot of the recycled trash they were taking from America. The and trash they, of the trash, I guess. <laughs> it, it was. The substandard trash. <laughs> Michael, and, talk to me about some of the effect uh, that this is having on the companies. On one hand, it seems like companies are being able to benefit from this. They're being able to export this to China. But I know that China has some new uh, pretty strict criteria coming up that might actually hurt some of these companies as well. 
Right. So, so what? When China at the beginning of this year started getting more stingier, wanted you know only the top of of uh, quality trash. It did a couple things. One, it kind of cratered the market in the United States because uh, much of the stuff that was being exported couldn't be exported anymore, and so that caused recyclable prices in the United States to sink by sixty percent or so. Uh, and in China, a lot of co- China companies in China had come to depend on this stuff. I didn't realize this, but as big as China is, uh, it really has very little uh, virgin uh, wood Hmm. available to turn into pulp and to turn into paper. Uh, The same goes for the raw materials of plastic. And so it has come to rely on Americans' recyclable stream to to fuel the factories. Uh, Almost all of its paper comes from recycled material, much of it from overseas, including the United States. And so when, you know, one of the uh, side effects of this, you know, China's decision to get strict at the beginning of the year was uh, some of their own companies started starving for raw materials to make uh, paper and cardboard and whatnot. And, And it's gotten bad enough that some paper mills, for example, uh, are sitting empty and or I'm sorry, sitting idle rather, yeah. and they're actually having to source, starting to look at factories in the United States to purchase. You know, there's been there's been a couple paper mills, uh, U.S. paper mills purchased by Chinese firms recently, partly just to take recycled paper from the U.S., clean it up, uh, you know, make sure it meets the new standards. Turn it into pulp and send it back to China to plug into their their paper mills. The same goes for plastics, where they're they're taking America, they're, they're buying factories in the U.S., cleaning up the plastic, pelletizing it, and shipping it back to China to make uh, all sorts of. Um, stuff, including uh, construction piping and such. And, and while this has been a boon, it, it sounds like there is some worry that this could all go away relatively quickly. There's a, potentially a ban on all forms of solid waste as imports from the Chinese. Is that right? That is. There There was a, uh, a an environmental agency in China uh, that has put out a proposed rule, has not passed yet, but that would ban basically all imports of solid waste. And so that could really exacerbate things even worse. Right. Um, the factories in China would be starving even more so than they are, and uh, it would cause even more of a, a, a collapse of recyclable prices in the United States. Unbelievable. Really great story. Michael Sasso, economy reporter for us at our, in our Atlanta bureau for Bloomberg News. The story is in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It is available already now on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. We'll I, have to ask him next time how he found this story. Right. How did you start digging into this? Well, and, and it, I mean, it's really interesting. And it, it is interesting. We didn't get into sort of the regional economics of this, but what I'm taking from this story is a lot of these types of factories are in the southeastern U.S. You think about sort of historically where these industries have been. You know, one of the things I know just from living down there is the biggest private landholder in all of Florida for a long time was essentially the DuPont family only for the timber. Wow. Um, and it became one of the largest uh, real estate companies down there, the St. Joe Company, a big developer. See, there's your Southern trivia for the day. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio, Jason Kelly and Taylor Riggs, Bloomberg Markets on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. That is our drive to the close. We are about 10 minutes now from the closing bell. Uh, and Jason, this is a treat because often uh, in the mornings on surveillance, when I double head as a producer, I get to book Bill Smead. He's the chief executive officer and chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management. And now he gets to be in my hot seat. <laughs> Um, so, Bill, it's great to have you. I want to just start off with sort of a, a broad question. You're a value guy. Can you walk me through why this is the time that you think to be a value over a growth investor? Well, uh, thank you for having us. And, and there's never a bad time uh, to be a value buyer, a value investor. Uh, a way to think about it is we're looking for companies through the lens of eight specific criteria for stock selection that have very favorable uh, future prospects over the next five to ten years that have something about their business that defends them from competition, has a, has a wide moat, and then is available at a bargain in comparison to where that particular stock has traded, say, the last five years. So, Bill, I have to ask you, reading some of your notes here, at some commentary you made uh, earlier this month, and and in talking about Elon Musk and Tesla, you say many and, – and you go back to Valiant, which is such an interesting uh, analog here. You say many well-respected value investors got excited about their roll-up wizardry, and when the value guys catch the fever, history shows you need to be skeptical. Where are you skeptical right now? Well, uh, Goldman put out their VIP list this week, the, the, the list of companies that are most, most heavily owned by the most respect, but respected hedge fund managers. Yeah. And, and on that list, it was almost exclusively technology stocks. Interesting. So right? I mean, the, the, the Comcast was on that list. We own Comcast, but you know they're the pipes that everybody gets their technology through. If you live in there, if, if you live in there, thirty-five percent of of the neighborhoods in America, right? So, so whether it be the index having thirty percent in tech, if you count Amazon and Netflix, whether it be the smartest value-oriented hedge fund managers that have had the most success in the past. Whether it be mutual fund managers that are used to be in the value category but now are in the blend category because they're they've drifted toward these popular items, uh, the pressure to conform has absolutely been maximal in the last ninety days. Yeah. So, Bill, talk to me a little bit about this because we've been talking a lot, of course, about how this is now the longest bull market in history, and I tracked back both Netflix and Amazon since March two thousand nine, and there. Are some of the best performers, you're returning 6,000 and 3,000% over that time. So what's mm-hmm. the case that now might be the time to get out? Well, uh, first of all, you have to kind of separate two things. There's speculative success and there's, you know, investment, investing success, right? In other words, the, the, the get rich, slow crew 
is extremely conscious of the risk-reward relationship. So let me take you back to 09, and I can remember conversations I was having with people at the time. So people would call me unsolicited, and they'd be looking at the astoundingly low prices of things at the bottom in 09, and they'd say, say, Bill, shouldn't, shouldn't I buy some Ford Motor stock at $2 a share? And, and my, answer, my answer to them is there is a distinct possibility that unless things turn in the next year that Ford could go out of business. So let's say you're trying to make 10 times your money over the following 10 years. There were lots of companies, Starbucks, for one, that, that was available at that time at, at $8 a share, like one or two splits ago, where you had a chance of making 10 times your money, but there, there, there was virtually zero chance of them going out of business, right? They didn't owe anybody any money, strong balance sheet, massive free cash flow, addicted customers. It was the only luxury in 2009 that people were really willing to spend money on. Now, it happened that Ford rebounded to $16, so you could have made eight times your money on Ford over the following four or five years, but if you'd have been wrong, you'd have lost all your money. Right. And, and and the Amazons and Netflix, if you go back to '09, were companies that you could have lost all of your money. So, so, so that's available to a specific kind of investor who can be an all or none uh, thing. The problem is the S and P 500 now has an amazingly large amount of money in in very high risk oriented securities, and that's because for the last five years. The risk got taken out of the risk-reward relationship, right? There's, there's, there's been no risk in writing expensive momentum revenue growth stories. So, well, I, I got to ask you, you know, you mentioned Amazon, and, and one of the ways that you've been playing this, it seems, is on the other side of, of getting Amazon. You're looking at Target Nordstrom. Target is up almost 3% today on its results. Only about 30 seconds left. Where's the value in sort of the other side of retail right now, the, the non-Amazon right. side? We've made our best money in the last 12 months on the things we bought a little over a year ago that were supposed to get annihilated by Amazon. That'd be Target, that'd be uh, Kroger, that would be uh, Discovery Communications. Nordstrom, and, right? and, and And those stocks got, you know, they returned to prices similar to the 09 bottom in terms of P.E., price to sales, pri- you know, pr- price to free cash flow. Uh, Target at 54 a year ago was at about the same prices uh, on an absolute basis that it was trading at at the bottom in 2009. Well, I got to tell you, Bill, Taylor was talking you up before we came on the air, and uh, and you really delivered. It was great talking to you. That, of course, Bill Smead, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer, Smead Capital Management, uh, overseeing about $2.3 billion based in Seattle, joining us on the phone. Great stuff. We know you'll come back soon with us. I'm Jason Kelly with Taylor Riggs here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.